Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. And I echo your comments about awareness and training. I think those are critical. I also think that we've seen, though, that over the last decade, as people have done a lot of training and they've hardened their infrastructure, those techniques are critical and important, but they have not really blunted the effect of social engineering. And I think all the data supports that, right? And I would actually argue that it's really critical to think about that human attack surface layer, because that's the next wave of thing that needs to be addressed in order to make it harder for the threat actors to use generative AI and to use these different techniques that are responsible for 80, 90% of the different breaches and attacks that you know that you open with actually, right? So. Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darren Kinlan, VP of Technology here at Fletch. Our usual co-host Chris Wilder is out on travel this week, but we'll be returning in future weeks to discuss other interesting threats. But this week, we're joined with a special guest, Matt Pollack, founder and CEO of Picnic, a cybersecurity firm focused on helping companies stop social engineering attacks before they even start. Matt is a subject matter expert in intelligence collection, having spent his career applying these skills for Fortune 500 customers. Matt's extensive experience and expertise in the field of human intelligence inspired Picnic's creation as a means to protect people from open source intelligence gathering by attackers. Prior to founding Picnic, he was also the founding partner of Broad Branch Advisors, where he directly supported over 200 billion in successful M&A transactions in over a dozen industries, ranging from cybersecurity to life sciences. Early on, Matt worked in investment banking and as an intelligence analyst. Matt holds dual MBAs from the UCLA Anderson School of Management and Escuela de Negocios de la Universidad Adolfo Ibanez in Chile. He received a BA in International Affairs from James Madison University. Wow, that's a mouthful. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. And that was excellent pronunciation on Adolfo Ibanez. I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I know my Spanish is a little rusty there, but try I, to make the best of it. couldn't tell. It was great. Yep. <laughs> so we'll be talking with Matt about social engineering schemes and his advice for protecting small and medium-sized businesses shortly. But first, let's run through this week's threat landscape and interesting threats of the week. Compared to past weeks, we've had some kind of stops and starts in terms of growth in this area. But wow, we are definitely in, in the thick of it in Q2 with the number of threats kind of hitting a new high for the entire year. 17 net new emerging threats appeared. And when we dig into the details, we see a lot of activity, not just in emerging, but threats that were transitioning from emerging to trending, and even quite a number of them going mainstream. In fact, a lot of the growth is because a lot of our existing threats that we're tracking are still getting updated even now, even some old threats getting kind of resurrected and very few threats actually retiring, meaning going inactive, or we haven't seen any activity in the past 30 days. But let's take a look at what was interesting for this past week. First off, what we found are a number of zero-day vulnerabilities, some that were old and now have become new again, some related to equipment that's actually gone out of scope or retired, including even three different types of ransomware operations that are currently active that have evolved in new and interesting ways. So let's dig into the details. In past weeks, we talked about 
a new type of zero-day vulnerability that was discovered back in April that was actually used by Russian threat actors that were trying to go after organizations through vulnerable Outlook clients, specifically for Windows. In fact, this vulnerability was so bad, an attacker could easily send a laced malicious email, didn't require the user to even open up the email, just that their Outlook client on Windows processed the email, and suddenly they get compromised. This type of complex vulnerability is so difficult to patch quickly that it's no surprise that Microsoft didn't actually get the patch completed correctly the first time. In fact, Akamai researchers discovered that there were other code paths associated with this vulnerability that were not properly addressed in the first patch, which is why Microsoft released yet another secondary patch for the same issue. So if you have rolled out your patch Tuesday for May already, great, good job. But if you haven't, definitely would recommend doing so as soon as possible, because again, this vulnerability is insidious. It's already been used by one particular threat group, and it's likely to be adopted and used by other less sophisticated threat groups, such as cyber criminals or ransomware operators. Next on our list is actually a set of vulnerabilities found within Cisco gear. Again, this is a common refrain from past weeks, where apparently a new type of remote execution vulnerability was discovered within Cisco VoIP devices that are used by small, medium-sized businesses. So unfortunately, these devices are already being flagged by Cisco as end of life, meaning they don't plan on patching these devices at all. In fact, your best bet is to retire them, replace them either with newer Cisco gear or maybe a different vendor altogether. But certainly one of the mitigations that you can employ is to make sure that your VoIP network is not directly connected to the internet. We talked about in the past weeks to use proper network segmentation this is exhibit A as to why you would want to do that. Because again, an attacker that's able to get into a compromised VoIP phone can not only record conversations happening over that phone, but could potentially use it as a beachhead to expand and access other sensitive portions of your network. Third on our list, Microsoft's partner, a Taiwanese PC maker called MSI was compromised and they announced the fact that they were breached very recently attributed to the money message or money ransomware group. Vendors get breached all the time, but what was unique about this particular breach is that code signing keys were stolen as part of the breach. And now what's being discovered is that those code signing keys can be used by the attacker to craft malware that can persist within the BIOS of Windows computer systems, which is pretty bad. So unfortunately, we've got a situation where most PCs have up-to-date mechanisms to protect against attacks at the BIOS later before even the operating system happens. These mechanisms are known as UEFI, and it's a way to protect the computer from not running any sort of malicious code before the operating system starts up. Unfortunately, with these signing keys stolen, it's possible for an attacker to actually create malware that can live and persist outside of the operating system, which is bad. So if you do happen to use any Windows computer systems manufactured by MSI, you definitely want to upgrade as soon as possible and certainly not trust any software signed by MSI in the subsequent weeks and months. 
Fourth on our list, in terms of new tactics used by ransomware operator Black Cat or ALV, it was discovered recently that they're now employing another mechanism to get victims to pay. This is a bit of an interesting dynamic because as you may have heard from previous weeks, we talked about how victims have stopped making payments, traditional ransomware payments. And now attackers are coming up with even more clever ways to get these victims to pay out. So we've talked about double extortion, triple extortion. Uh, I would call this a fourth method of extortion, which is now that the attackers have stolen your data, held it hostage, threatened to leak that information on potentially the dark web or through public channels. Well, the fourth method of extortion is actually to conduct a distributed denial of service attack against your network. This type of activity is going to continue. This is just another evolutionary step, but certainly if you are a victim of ransomware, you definitely want to consider this as another legitimate tactic to defend against when you're looking at your network architecture and protecting, let's say you have an e-commerce platform that you want to protect using anti-denial of service mitigations is an appropriate strategy. And then lastly on our list, the Royal Ransomware, which is another group formed by ex-Conti members that rebranded effectively, have gone after a number of different industry verticals, specifically targeting healthcare in the past, but now they're going after manufacturing organizations, including local governments, and it doesn't seem like it's going to let up. One of the biggest tactics, though, of how they get in is actually through a pretty common mechanism, which is compromised credentials. And really, this is a great way to kind of talk about this problem in general, because compromised credentials are a endemic problem across every major industry. And it's one of the reasons why we invited Matt to join us today to kind of talk about this in a little bit more detail. So from your perspective, Matt, one of the things that we're interested in understanding is what are some of the practical steps that small and medium-sized businesses can take to kind of reduce their exposure as it relates to these types of threats, not just this particular ransomware, but sure. ransomware in general. Yeah, look, I, I think that you've run through a variety of different types of, of threats that have uh, come onto the landscape here, different threat actors, different approaches, just different techniques that they employ. And you've hit on ransomware as obviously being you know, one of the key downstream effects of that, right? When you look at the different methods that these groups use, there's usually a handful of key techniques that they're using. So you touched on credential compromise. Phishing is obviously one of the most common techniques. I think between phishing and credential compromise, those two together account for somewhere between you know, 70 and 90% of all the different types of compromises that happen, right? So these are really, really significant stats that everybody should be sort of thinking about both how do I understand what that means and how do I protect against that? So what I would say is that there is a number of really straightforward things that an organization can do to help prevent those types of compromise. You know, I think everybody always talks about MFA. I think, you know, certainly that is a really good thing that people should employ and deploy if they have not you know, making sure that you've done the analysis to say, what are my crown jewel assets and do I have them properly protected is a really critical thing to do. Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, once you've done that first line of, of defense in terms of those types of protections, more traditional technical protections, right? I think, you know, starting to think a little bit about how is my human attack surface exposed? And that's really what we talk a lot about at Picnic, because ultimately these different types of attacks that are successful are actually leveraging that human dimension. They're tricking matter, they're coercing us, they're manipulating us to click on a link, to share our credentials, to harvest our credentials. 
right? And that's really how a lot of these things are, are actually happening. You know, I think that there is a move afoot today, maybe just to touch on one topic around passwordless and some of these more right. advanced technologies. And, I, and then look, I think technology is a good thing for companies to employ new technologies, right? To try to actually limit credential compromise and credential stuffing and these types of attacks. But it's not a silver bullet. What's going to happen and what we'll see happen is that attackers will just change their, their motives, right? They'll change or change their, their activities, I should say, right? They're going to figure out, okay, well, if I can no longer maybe use a particular technique, now I've got to steal your session token and use that to bypass the system, right? So again, these things that folks are deploying are really designed to make it more expensive and more difficult for threat actors to break in. It's not a silver bullet, right? And so I think it's just really important for folks to understand that, you know, folks talk a lot about defense in depth. I think that's really important, you know, and I would say that top layer of your humans is actually one of the most important places. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that as well as part of the discussion here, just, just to maybe touch on some of the more technical stuff. I think, you know, MFA, password lists, right, traditional control sets, EDR, et cetera, right? Those are important things to do. But I think if you don't really dig into that human attack surface element, you're likely going to be in a reactive response mode more often than you'd like to be. Human factors are the common constant, regardless of how your organization is structured, how the infrastructure is built, how it's engineered, what controls do you have? And it's funny because a lot of security operators, a lot of teams that are responsible for securing the organization don't even think about it as part of their overall strategy. And as you kind of mentioned, everyone is looking for just technical solutions to a human problem. Yes. And it's like, if you just ignore the human element, it doesn't matter how many controls you throw at it. Even if you went fully password, I'm sure someone is still going to click on a link and fill out a form and be like, oh, well, this looks right. I'm just going to give them my credentials to you know, make my job easier. And that's hard for people to, to sometimes realize is no matter how well your system's architected, there's always going to be that point of vulnerability. So from your perspective, what are some of the things that these organizations can think about when they start factoring in the human element? You mentioned mm -hmm. trying to simulate social engineering attacks or doing lightweight pen testing or maybe some training. I'm curious, how much of that do you think these businesses should invest in that area as part of their overall strategy? Look, I think that everyone always talks about training. I think that that is an important and necessary step for everyone to take to, to build awareness about what's happening. That's a good and important thing to do. And it's relatively inexpensive, which is important too. There are many things you can do. So maybe we can zero in and talk about kind of the threats of the day that, that we focused on. So maybe if we talk about credential compromise and credential stuffing as a particular type of threat that can be very specifically and directly mitigated. So today, one thing that can be done by organizations, as an example, is essentially collecting and thinking like a, like a threat actor, right? So a threat actor essentially is trying to look at Darren, they're trying to look at Matt, and they're trying to say... How am I going to use their identity to get into this organization to deploy ransomware, whatever it might be? They're not looking only at your or my work identity. They're also looking at our personal identities. They're looking at our social media accounts. They're looking at all these kinds of things, right? As a defender, one really simple and good thing to do is to not only take your work identities that you have for the organization, by the way, including your service accounts, mm -hmm. but also to collect the personal identities of your employees, you can ask them to opt into it as an example, if you don't have some tooling that can do this for you. And so that what you're able to do is essentially take the entire identity footprint of your organization, and then collect 
passwords that are out there and exposed, and then essentially block them inside of your infrastructure. So Active Directory, as an example, allows users to have a banned password list that's limited to 1,000 passwords, but you can actually take those passwords that are exposed for your organization, you can plop them in AD, and you can prevent their reuse, right? So I think a lot of companies today are thinking about maybe my work identity, and they're grabbing those exposed credentials, they're blocking them in AD, that's great. Right? We would say that one of the key ways that organizations are being successfully compromised to deploy ransomware, et cetera, is actually through leveraging that personal identity. Right, So expanding yeah. your, you know, really thinking like a threat actor, thinking like the attacker is an important thing to do when you're trying to prevent this type of problem from happening. Right. That's a really great set of points, especially how most organizations work life balance for a lot of different employees has changed drastically since the yeah, pandemic. Right. You know, it used to be you'd go into an office and access all of your work equipment and it would be physically partitioned from all of your personal devices and gear. And since the pandemic with hybrid work, remote work, it's no longer the case, right? I mean, Sorry. every employee in an organization has work profiles and personal profiles. Mm -hmm. And all of that is fair game from an attacker perspective. On that topic, when you sit down and make a list of the people in your organization that you really care about protecting, right? And, and we have this conversation a lot, and I'm sure you do too, with folks that are trying to defend. But it's very mm -hmm. common that somebody will say, okay, well, I want to make sure I protect my C-suite. I want to make sure I protect my board of directors, right? They've got sort of a seniority-driven view of the world. Sure. And, you know, I think it's really important that people think about their organization really, again, from the point of view of the threat actor, right? Who is a high-value target? So it could be someone who has the keys to the social media account for the company, right? Actually, quite a lot of organizational and reputational damage can be caused by hosting something that's inappropriate, right, on a company's social media account or, or taking it over, et cetera. So there are many different types of humans that might fall into that group. And then just running a very simple campaign with them that could just be an education campaign if you don't have the tooling to do this to say, hey, let's make sure that you're not exposing sensitive details about our organization in social media, right? Let's make sure that we're not posting specific personally identifiable information of like our birthdays or things like that that might be used for password reset processes in social media. So there's a variety of things that can be done, again, with some really basic tooling and some quick campaigns to folks that really focus in on that human attack service to try to make it more difficult and more expensive for the threat actor to come after you to begin with. Yeah, it's funny. I remember five, 10 years ago, DOD and other organizations would call figuring out your high value targets as part of crown jewel analysis, right? Where you're trying to figure out, okay, who has access to the crown jewels? Where is the sensitive data? And one of the things that's kind of evolved from that philosophy is that high value data exists in a ton of different locations, usually scattered across a whole bunch of different either infrastructure that's internally inside an organization or through SaaS apps that are accessible and managed and manipulated by a ton of different employees. For sure. So this challenge of figuring out, all right, well, where to start, where to begin, like who has access to high value data is not easy for many different organizations, but absolutely critical. I think a couple of weeks back, we talked about the latest update regarding an old breach that happened with Okta. And back then, it was one of, I think, four senior developers who managed to get compromised, not through their work equipment, but actually through their personal equipment. The attackers then installed the keylogger on their personal equipment. Then the developer logged in to their work infrastructure from their personal device 
yeah. which then was the first in a series of dominoes that led to that overall breach. So figuring out who has access to the crown jewels is not easy per se. It's, you know, it can be very difficult, especially if you don't have auditing turned on or auditing enabled, but it's absolutely vital to trying to figure out what's the best approach. Like, as you mentioned, thinking like an attacker, figuring out, okay, who are the high value targets? All right, let's start to do lightweight social engineering attacks against these particular people, make sure that they're trained not to click on anything that looks legitimate, but is actually fake. And from your perspective, is this really like a one-time process or would you consider this to be a periodic or continual process? I think it needs to be a continual process. If you can only do it once, it's better than not at all, right? But I think, you know, the, the challenge is that these threats are changing rapidly. As you noted, you know, obviously in the last week or so, there's there's been a handful of new types of developments, right? So it's changing rapidly. And the underlying tech is also changing rapidly that threat actors are using. If you look at the developments with ChatGPT, you know, yeah. et cetera, right? All these different, large, like, you know, uh, the LLMs that have been developed are incredible tools for the average human, they're also incredible tools for the threat actor, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, if you want to run an experiment for yourself, go to your someone from your senior leadership team, grab their bio and their LinkedIn profile, just that data, and drop it into one of, you know, choose your favorite LLM and ask it to write an invitation email for a speaking opportunity, just as an example, right? And see what the output is, right? Tell it, tell it you want it to be customized based on their experience, you know, use your imagination a little bit, right? But right. that is a very compelling lure and that's not hard to do. And so right. if you think about that capability at scale where everyone in your organization can have their data harvested and then pushed through an LLM, it's pretty important to really think about your human attack service and how you minimize the right parts of that so that it can't actually be used to create successful phishing lures. I mean, it used to be that you could look at an email and see, okay, this is poorly written. There's like spelling errors or grammatical errors and be like, all right, I know that this is not legitimate. But yeah, with generative AI, it's like suddenly the attackers have full fluency of your native language and are trying to make those personal connections to make it as enticing as possible. Wow, it's it's a recipe for increasing the conversion rate from the attacker's perspective. So yeah, absolutely. You know, leveraging these tools for defense and monitoring makes a lot of sense. I kind of wonder how personal can you get, right? Like, you know, as you mentioned, trying to harvest as much personal information that's available, freely available, that's publicly known through LinkedIn or elsewhere. But you might be able to sprinkle what would be considered maybe company sensitive information to get them to actually engage even more in a way that is at that line for what you think an attacker might do as part of their tactics. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, you think, use your imagination, try to think like an attacker a little bit, you know? So um, can you pretty quickly and easily piece together who some of the partners are for your company? Can you go and check out maybe some of the shared postings on social media where your team might be liking or commenting on the, you know, the postings of partners or vice versa, maybe business deals that are happening that are being publicly announced, like all this kinds of stuff is just natural fodder for a threat actor who's trying to insert themselves into not always, but often into an event-driven situation, you know? So there's an M&A event that's happening, right? There's a new plant that's opening. If you're in maybe in the manufacturing world on gas, 
These are all the different types of things that can be entry points for a threat actor to insert themselves into a conversation with your team in a way that feels very natural, right? And if they've got huge writing samples from folks that they can plug into an LLM, right? It gets very easy to convincingly impersonate someone. And you know, actually that impersonation thing reminds me of a really excellent and simple thing that folks should make sure that they're doing, which is making sure they've got the right controls for DMARC and DCAM and SPF set up. And I'm sure you sure. talked about that in, in prior sessions, but that is a really simple way to make sure that it's much harder for an organization to impersonate folks on your team, spoof your mail. So, you know, Makes again, sense. it's all different social engineering tactics that are that are out there, right? It's easy to know whether or not you have it turned on because you can check from the outside. That makes you a more a more likely target, unfortunately, if you don't have the right controls in place. Right. I mean, a lot of times just having those controls could be enough of a, I would say, a speed bump for attackers to look elsewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not about having the best protections, but it's about having more protections than your average counterpart or peer to make you less likely of a target. There's one interesting element that you've mentioned, which is around mapping out, obviously, supply chains. When everyone talks about supply chain security and identifying and mapping out business relationships, it seems kind of natural to try to conduct social engineering attacks to confirm that there isn't a weak link within that communications mm -hmm. layer, right? But what's interesting is that because your employees are going to be targeted, not just through their work and professional profiles, but potentially through personal profiles as well, attackers might also consider their familial relationships or even relationships that they made earlier on in their career, maybe in their ed educational career, as valid points of entry to also go after. So I think one of the interesting things you mentioned is how we have to kind of broaden our notion of what really is a relationship chain or a supply chain that a social engineer might consider as part of how they would gain access into an environment like this. Yeah, you've made a really interesting point, right? Because the data that's available if you go back a decade, it was a different data set, right? Go back to right. a more different data set, or increasingly different, like the further you go back. But today, I can relatively easily, or a threat actor can relatively easily identify your family, identify your neighbors, identify yeah. people you went to school with, right? I mean, these tools are there. It's not, it's not just social media. You know, data brokers are a key input into a threat actor's stew that they're cooking up, right? So these are all the types of things that when we spend time talking with customers about this problem, right? We talk about breach data credentials, which is a key thing, right? We talk about social media. We talk about data brokers, right? These are places where the key ingredients, the building blocks for these different attacks, the actual fuel, the underlying fuel lives. If I don't know anything about you that's material and personal and detailed, it's it's really hard to make a compelling attack, right? And so that actually, if you remove that fuel, it actually, and break those reconnaissance chains, right? That's really what these things are. They're recon chains. It becomes really expensive to and hard to write a compelling phishing email. And to your point earlier, if it's hard, if it's expensive, it's difficult, you know, somebody's going to move on, right? They got better. Right. There's a lot of companies out there that aren't thinking about this and they're not being smart about it. And, uh, you know, it's easier to make money off them. I mean, at the end of the day, cyber criminals, ransomware operators, they operate like a business. <laughs> it's just an unethical business, but it's still a business and they don't want to spend more than they need to, to be able to get into an, a, a given environment. That said, you know, generative AI is certainly lowering a ton of barriers. And what used to be talked about as the plot to a Hollywood movie 
or a great novel is now becoming a reality <laughs> in a matter of months time. So yeah, we'll see what the next set of breaches look like. I, I'm I'm curious as to how detailed and methodical attackers will get in the future. But at the core of it, it's really about promoting that awareness that you mentioned around just being mindful of who you're talking with and where the information's coming from. A lot of times there's now a need to educate the public about disinformation and, you know, hey, this is another form of that, right? And this type of continual education is so vital. It transcends pretty much any sort of technology that you're working with. So it should be kind of a foundational element and not left as an afterthought for a lot of heads of security's overall strategies. I think there's a lot more to uncover here and... I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you see this getting more complicated in the future or getting easier in the future? I'm curious. I think that it's going to get more complicated. Unfortunately, these types of tools will make it more difficult to train people. It will make it more difficult to detect when you have a problem, just in the same ways it makes everyone else's life easier to help write an email or whatever it might be. You know, it also makes the threat actors lives easier too. So I, I think it's going to unfortunately, be a net negative for security organizations in the long run. Obviously, there's some positives for security teams, too, that are leveraging these tools for defense, right? But I think that my personal view today, given what I know, is that it's going to be a challenging environment to deal with. And I echo your comments about awareness and training. I think those are critical. I also think that we've seen, though, that over the last decade, as people have done a lot of training and they've hardened their infrastructure, those techniques are critical and important, but they have not really blunted the effect of social engineering. And I think all the data supports that, right? And I would actually argue that it's really critical to think about that human attack surface layer, because that's the next wave of thing that needs to be addressed in order to make it harder for the threat actors to use generative AI and to use these different techniques that are responsible for 80, 90% of the different breaches and attacks that you, know, that you opened with actually, right? So yeah, I think critical building blocks for sure. And I think that there's more to be done to actually impact this problem. So the future is equal parts exciting and equal parts, you know, uh, terrifying, I guess, depending on like which seat you're in. Um, but yeah, it's going to continue to evolve for sure. Certainly fascinating times. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It's certainly been a pleasure talking with you about this topic. So for anyone who is in our audience who has questions about either this topic or past topics that we've covered, please DM us at The Threat Show. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you're interested in joining us for future conversations about these topics or other topics like this, please let us know as well. Thanks again, and join us again for next week's episode. Thanks for having me on. Great chatting with you. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats. 